At its very core, drug science must remain independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. It's with the support of the drug science community we're able to do this and make the podcast in the first place. If you're able to become a drug science community member and support the show, you too will be supporting the dissemination of evidence-based drug policies. Without you, none of this would be possible. For anybody interested, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. Welcome everyone to this Drug Science Podcast. And today we have two, we have two people on the podcast at the same time. And that's because they're almost always spoken about in the same breath, the Mitthoffers, pioneers of many things, but particularly known to all of us as the pioneers of MDMA therapy. So welcome, Annie and Michael. Thank you, David. It's really, really good to see you and a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it, we've been together for 50 years now, so it's we've kind of melded into one unit in a lot of ways. <laughs> Thank you, David. Yeah, well, at the end, we'll start talking about the secret of a happy marriage, but probably <laughs> most of our people are listening to this wanting to understand... Uh, where you came from and how you got the idea of doing MDMA therapy and and how you've managed to basically be the absolute pioneers in this field. So who's going to kick off and tell us when this crazy idea of using MDMA for therapy came to you? I guess I had the crazy idea first, but she was close behind. Really, you know, even though we've been doing clinical research now for 20, a little over 20 years, were really clinicians, basically, who were forced into research by the clinical need, basically, in my case. When I was in training, I didn't think I was interested in research very much. So it wasn't until later, after 10 years of practicing psychiatry, first 10 years of practicing emergency medicine, and then 10 years of practicing psychiatry after that, that I was just, you know, became increasingly aware and dissatisfied with some of the treatments you know, the treatments we had available for many people. So it was really, you know, I'd been in college in the 60s and I experienced psychedelics then and kind of thought left that thinking they were important, but leaving it behind for many years, several decades. And then Annie and I did have the opportunity to experience MDMA with a therapist several times back when it was legal. So we had a, a sense of what these compounds could do. And then, of course, we were aware of all the groundbreaking work others had done with psychedelics in the past, you know, really reputable research by Stan Groff and many others. And then the, the case reports about MDMA being useful in therapy by George Greer and many others. So it just, what struck me after a while practicing psychiatry was, wait a minute, drug companies are researching random compounds that they discover here are compounds where there's quite a lot of anecdotal evidence, at least in the case of MDMA, by reputable people saying that this is really could be helpful in therapy. So why is it not being researched? It was really that. It felt ethically actually unacceptable for physicians to be ignoring these leads instead of uh, vigorously researching them. So that's uh, having no idea what I was getting into. 
So Annie, so you're a psychologist, is that right? No, I'm a nurse. You're, oh, okay. I'm a nurse. And I started working with Michael when he switched to be a psychiatrist and had a private practice. So we worked together with a number of patients and we did breathwork groups after we, after we did uh, our own training in breathwork and became certified. Michael and I led breathwork groups for 10 years with some of the people that came to the private practice and just some people, you know, just would come for the groups. But we saw how, what an incredible healing process that was to do breathwork along with psychiatry, I mean, along with therapy. But it also didn't cover everybody, you know. There still were people that we knew maybe needed something different. We did EMDR in the office and neurofeedback. So many things, but wanted to try. So we knew that we knew, like Michael said, we knew that MDMA was really useful for communication and some of the other anecdotal things that had been written about it. So thinking that maybe that would be a way to help some people with PTSD. Michael's practice really had quite a number of people with PTSD. Oh, was, was that deliberate or as a result of your time in the emergency room or was that you got a reputation for being effective or, or what? Yeah, I think it, it wasn't so deliberate and it was a natural interest I had. And during psychiatry residency, I was clinical chief on the trauma unit in my fourth year. And I, I was very interested in that. And then it just kind of happened. The more people came with trauma, the kind of I got, a, got known as somebody that treated trauma a lot. Well, I think also, Michael, that the fact that you did EMDR early on, before a lot of people were doing EMDR, you got a lot of referrals from other therapists that said, maybe let's try some EMDR with Michael or, or try some breath work. I'm not sure all my listeners will understand what EMDR is. One of you like to kind of clarify that, explain that to them, what you were doing? Maybe, Michael? Sure. Uh, EMDR stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. It's a technique that Francine Shapiro, a psychologist who recently died, unfortunately, Francine Shapiro kind of happened upon this phenomenon and then really ran with it and found that uh, it appears that alternating bilateral stimulation can help people with emotional processing. So it usually involves watching a light go back and forth. So your eyes are moving back and forth as a way of stimulating emotional process. So that was another thing that many people thought were crazy at first, was crazy at first, but then turned out to have uh, good data. So it's another way of processing trauma that I think can be very useful. So you were looking all the time as a, as a team, you were looking for, for ways of improving the outcome of people with PTSD and, and because traditional psychotherapy isn't so good at that, is it? And, uh, and you, you, you're trying these different biological treatments. And then what, you, you read the paper by Greer or did you, did, were you friends with him? I mean, how did you get into the MDMA circle? Well, we had, initially I just read uh, George and Requa's papers, but then when we got permission for the first study, we wrote to George and Requa and asked if we could come out and take them out to dinner and learn from them about how they did it. So we met them early on and they were very gracious to have them have us at their house. And so we've been, been friends since then. So you decided just to set up an MDMA study in your own practice. I mean, that's a serious challenge. Were you in a, in a university or was it just a private practice? No, I was not in university. I, I was on clinical faculty at the university, but I, I didn't work there and didn't do much there. 
Yeah, I, um, as I say, I, probably luckily I didn't know what I was getting into. So I just decided, <laughs> this is not acceptable. We got to research this. So I approached Rick Dobbin. I'd never met Rick, but I was, we were MAPS members. We, we were interested in their mission. So I, I just approached Rick and asked him, I actually said, which offshore country do you recommend I go to to do MDMA research? And, and Rick said, oh, you can do it here and we'll help you. That was in January of 2000. And originally, originally, we thought you were going to have to do it at the Medical University of South Carolina. We got, I mean, that's where we thought we would do it. And then we couldn't get approval. Oh, you mean the university stopped you? Yeah, well, we, we couldn't get uh, we couldn't get the IRB to, to look at it. Right, okay. And so then we went back to the FDA and said, no, could we do it at the office, our private practice? And we got approval for that. Yeah, what Rick said was, Rick said, why don't you go home and write a draft protocol and then we'll take it from there in, in early 2000. So not knowing any better, I went home and did that and got a lot of help. You know, we actually took another couple out to dinner. So we, we knew Kathleen Brady and her husband, Bruce Lydiard, both psychiatrists ah, and researchers, and Kathleen's a PI on the Zoloft trials. So when we got back after Rick said, why don't you go write a protocol? I called up Kathleen and said, could we take you and Bruce to dinner and uh, ask you how to do clinical research? So we had a conversation with them at dinner and got a few tips and then got a lot of other input from real researchers along the way, of course, but that's how it started. How did you deal with the problem of having to keep the drug safe? You know, this really dangerous drug you have to keep locked up. I mean, <laughs> did you have to get special assessment by the, by the FDA and the DEA to be able to do this, did you? We certainly did. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> we certainly did. You know, happily, we got, it took us about a year to get the protocol finalized. But then when we submitted the FDA in uh, October 1st of 2001, we got FDA approval on November 1st of 2001 after, after a conference call with them to sort out some details. So it was strikingly quick right at that first step. But then it took another until that was fall of 2001. It took until March of 2004 to get the other approvals we needed the DEA and IRB, which was a whole nother twisted story if we went through a few IRBs. So there was a lot of delay with DEA. I mean, the DEA. Yeah. Yeah. Inspections, safe. They actually had to investigate the therapist in the office across the wall from where we had the safe because they were afraid she would drill in the back of the safe. <laughs> <laughs> I, I called her up and said, hey, the DA wants to check on you. Can I give him your contact information? She said, yeah, but just tell him I'm not good with tools. <laughs> <laughs> so there was a lot of that, which always, you know, caused a lot of delay, but we did get through it. It's similar. It took us two years to get permission to do the first side of Simon. And, you know, the, yeah. the fact that I have to have a special safe with a camera to hold psilocybin, you know, where you can pick the mushrooms outside. <laughs> it always seems to me kind of absurd, but these uh, organizations, they create a, a mystique and a fantasy, which kind of justifies their existence, I think. Yeah. Well, when the, when the DEA people were there inspecting the first time, this big safe with the alarm on the safe and an alarm on the building, I said to the uh, DEA agent, and I said, you know, we don't want anything to go wrong any more than you do. I'm just surprised that you're that worried about the small quantity of MDMA when 
people could probably go down to the college campus and, and get it a lot more easily. And what the agent said was, yeah, but people who take this stuff are so crazy, you don't know what they might do. <laughs> so yes. that was kind of the attitude we were dealing with. Drug crazy yeah. criminals, yeah. But once we found out we were, we were following the rules, they've become reasonable to work with. We haven't had delays from the DEA in recent years. That was only in the beginning. No, absolutely right. Yeah, you, you do what they say, you do it right, and then they get confidence in you. Yes, you can, yeah. Yeah. Can't, they have ultimate power. There's no point in fighting them. You've got to go with them. Yeah. yeah. But you did it, and then you – so you – got a trial and it was a well tell us about the trial because it's just a landmark study in the history of psychiatry yeah i want to emphasize how much support and help we had in doing this too it was a real team effort of a lot of the hard-working people at maps so it definitely wasn't just us mm-hmm. and some of our breathwork friends helped us get the music together and so you know talking about how the room should be and so we had a lot of help from people but the design, let's just look at the design, because yeah, as I say, it's yeah. become actually the de facto kind of design for all MDMA trials, certainly since that's what we've kind of used it as well. So you decided, I think, was it 16-week psychotherapy, weekly psychotherapy, and then two episodes, two sessions of MDMA interspersed in the middle. So so why did you choose two? And We chose two because we thought we didn't know if we could get approval from FDA for any sessions. So a lot of the decisions, it's interesting now to look back at the protocols and the way they've kind of become reified. And a lot of it was just decisions I kind of came up with as best I could based on, along with Rick and others, you know, we all brainstormed a lot about it, but we didn't, we modified it according to, we tried to strike a balance between what we thought would be ideal and what we thought the FDA would allow. And of course, we didn't know where that point was. But that was the reason for two. We didn't think two was necessarily the ideal number, but we thought it was a reasonable number. And we thought any more than that, the FDA probably wouldn't. Okay, I see. Right. So you were pitching for the most you thought you could get and and you got two. Right. And then when we had data halfway through that first study, when we sent them the safety data, we asked for a third session and, and they granted it then. So basically it's been a process of starting very conservatively. And then as we get more data and we get more comfortable with it and the FDA gets more comfortable with it, we've modified things. We've increased from two to three sessions. We decreased the frequency of blood pressure medicines and all that kind of thing. So it's really been a process of, again, balancing what we thought clinically made sense, what we thought made sense from a research perspective and what we thought we could get approval for. So yes, you intimated the, the very first study, you had to do quite a lot of safety mo- monitoring, didn't you? Just to make sure that the, the myths it was going to cause hypertension and heart attacks were myths. We did, yeah. We had to have blood pressure checks every 15 minutes for four hours and then every 30 minutes for two more hours. Sometimes five, every five minutes if it went above the thresholds. Yeah. So we've, you know, got the FDA has agreed little by little. Now we only do the blood pressure three times the whole eight hours. So let's talk about the overarching design and then come to the session, MDMA sessions in a minute. So you have a, I think it's, is it 16 weeks? Is that right? 16 weeks overall? Yeah, roughly. Yeah. So how do you structure those 16 weeks? So first, of course, careful informed consent and careful screening, medical and psychological screening by outside physician and, and psychologist. And then 
we think the pre preparation period is very important. Once we've established that they, they meet the criteria and we taper them off any psychiatric medicines, then we have three 90-minute preparatory sessions because we think it's really important not only to establish a relationship with people, but to orient them toward this approach to therapy, which is quite different from what many people had experienced in that it's rather non-directive. We call it interdirective. So instead of telling people this is what you should do, we invite people to be curious and have an as little agenda as they can about what the session should be and then to discover what their own inner process, the way that, that unfolds. So we want to orient people toward that possibility. Also let them know sometimes, unlike many psychiatric medicines that are aimed at directly decreasing symptoms, this is aimed at processing the underlying psychological experiences that are leading to the symptoms. So in that process, they might feel more symptoms before they feel better. And it's important for people to know that uh, ahead of time so they can decide whether they want to do it and also be prepared for the fact that if that happens, it's okay. If, as long as they're supported and working through it, it can be part of the healing process. So that's why we think the preparation is so important. And then, you know, the MBMA sessions, there are only three of them about a month apart. They're eight hours each, but then there's a lot of attention to integration sessions afterwards, follow up to help them work with whatever might get stirred up and also to integrate what they're learning and what they're experiencing into their lives. So, and the, the MDMA sessions were 125 milligrams and then a top up was 62 and a half a bit later on. Is that right? After a couple of hours? In most of the studies, yeah, we did, we did test different doses from 25 up to 150 and we basically arrived at the therapeutic range seems to be around 75 to 125 seems to be a, a good range so then when you go into the uh, first mdma session so people they take the pill eye shades and earphones or talk us through how that session rolls out so yeah so they what we do ask them to do is to talk about any fears and concerns before they take the, the pill. And uh, we have some agreements about staying through the session. And for some of the studies, they spend the night at the office with a night attendant, and then we see them the following day. So some agreements about touch and, and then they take the pill. And then we suggest that they go inside by putting eye shades and headphones on and listening to some very quiet relaxation type of music for the first hour. And then we would, normally we would check in at about an hour if they hadn't come out and talked to us. So we say that, you know, anytime they have something they wanna talk about, feel free to come out. But the best way to do that first hour is just quietly and see how the MDMA comes up. And then as the day progresses, people start to have a rhythm of coming out and taking their headphones and eye shades off and talking to us about something. And then if it gets a little long winded and they seem like they've talked a lot about something, you know, pretty hard or something that has a lot of depth to it, we might suggest going back inside with their headphones and eye shades and just see what is there and, and see how the medicine MDMA is, is helping them and their inner healer. And so the day kind of goes back and forth like that with music if people are comfortable with it. The music 
changes and starts to have more of a, a emotional content. We use music that doesn't have English words. And then gradually, it goes back to a more relaxing a type of music towards the end of the day. So they're prepared for an experience and, and they're prepared, you encourage them to use that experience to think about important things. And I guess they're mostly they think about the trauma, yes? So we, we tell people that, you know, if they haven't brought up the trauma during the day or, I mean, sometimes people do not talk about the trauma that day, but they'll talk about it the next day. But we say we would like the agreement to gently bring it up if it seems like an appropriate time. But yeah, we, we tell people that whatever comes first is, you know, how their process is developing. And sometimes people have very positive experiences before they go into the trauma. Like I survived, or I'm in a loving family now, or things are different and experiencing that before they dive into the trauma. And some people, right when the medicine comes on, they are right in the trauma, just like revisiting. We've had a number of people where the session is like that. And then they're just there re-experiencing it in a different way with the MDMA. Would that be the heart beating in that and getting them the sort of somatic symptoms, perhaps provoking the memory with it? Maybe. Yeah, that's interesting because sometimes people do have trouble with, they feel the autonomic Mm -hmm. effects, their heart beating faster and they they kind of it can feel like a panic attack and it can feel as if they're losing control so sometimes that does bring up the trauma for people but in general we find that during that period if if they're having that experience as the medicine's coming on we just encourage them to try to relax and realize that it'll pass and that's quite different from the approach we take to anxiety later later we encourage people not to try to relax if they're feeling anxious we try to encourage them to try to experience and express what's coming up and explore it. But it seems for practical reason, people can get kind of sidetracked by the initial effect of the medicine. It just seems usually, not always, but usually more helpful just to get them through that. Mm -hmm. Then they start to feel, okay, I'm going to be okay. And then they can grapple with more difficult stuff later. It's usually the way it works. But we find that there's a, there seems to be value in this, relatively non-directive approach for the reasons Annie says. Some people seem to do really well with processing some other kinds of things first, and then the trauma. Other people go straight to the trauma, and it seems to work well just to honor their own individuality. Yeah, so one thing we didn't make clear, is the two of you always there with the the patient, is that right? Yes, we are. We're always there. We we do say that we'll maybe take a break and go get our lunch in the other room. But very often we will maybe bring that lunch back to the session and eat in the room so that we don't miss anything. But yeah, no, they're never alone. One of us is always there and both of us are almost always there. Well, pardon me for butting in mid-episode, but I wanted to say a huge thank you to all the drug science community supporters. It's thanks to your donations that this podcast is possible. To thank our most generous community members, on the 8th of June this year, 2021, we will host a live podcast recording event exclusively for our premium and philanthropic community members. In this special episode, you can be the host and you can ask me anything. If you want to come to this recording, there's still time, assuming that is you're not listening to this in the distant dystopian future. 
There will be a link to the event in the show notes for the current premium in philanthropic community members and information how to become a member to join me on the 8th of June. I look forward to seeing you then. And now, back to the show. And in terms of the, the sort of mental processing, I'm, I mean, I guess there will be people who are sort of single, primary, horrible trauma, but then there will also be some who've had that, but also have got a history of trauma in childhood. And is it a different process for them? The ones who've got chronic trauma compared with one acute trauma? Well, the nature of the experience is going to be different, but the approach that we take is not different. In a way, this relatively non-directive approach is sort of self-correcting in that way. But if we encourage people to be open to their own experience rather than having an agenda, it kind of ends up accommodating those differences quite well, usually. That, you know, they're what they process will be different if they've had childhood trauma versus a single incident. But the way we approach it is essentially the same. And people, people with childhood trauma or, or with lots of tra- traumatic experiences don't always have to talk about each single one. A lot of it happens with the MDMA inside where a lot of it is just kind of taken care of with their inner process. And then they may talk about a few things, you know, that they really want to have a witness to and and tell that part of it. But so much happens too, that we don't, we don't hear about as far as the inner process. And most people we've in the studies have had more complex trauma or multiple traumas. Some have had single incident, but it's, that's been really less frequent than people with multiple traumas. And Interestingly, in our recent study, we found that in a couple studies, in one pilot study, we found that people with more adverse childhood experiences did just as well as people without adverse childhood experiences. And then in the more recent phase three trial, we found that people with dissociative subtype, which happens of PTSD, which happens you know more often with people with early trauma, those people did at least as well as the people without dissociative subtypes. So that's an interesting, you know. Well, that's not just interesting. That's very, that's very exciting because they very tend exciting. to do badly and under traditional psychotherapy or traditional yeah. medication, don't they? So, yeah. so that's very They had actually, in the phase three trial, they had a larger drop in caps in the dissociative subtype group with the MDMA therapy, but not larger with the therapy alone with, with placebo. So you know, we got to pursue this more and see if it holds up. But I think that's an exciting development. So, Michael, you've um, made mention of the new study, which is um, not just a new study. It's also a breakthrough study. So why don't you tell the listeners about that? Yeah, well, this is our first phase three trial that was just published. And the way it works is, you know, the studies we were talking about before were the phase two trials MAPS sponsored six of those. We did a couple of them, and others did them in U.S., Canada, Switzerland, and Israel. And so that data is what got us permission to move into this larger phase three trial, which is the last phase before you can apply for a new drug application. You've got to do two phase three trials normally. So we have been working on that for several years, and we just finally published the results. And The agreement we had, we had a special protocol agreement with FDA that was an extra level of review for the protocol. And they, you know, that agreement 
said that if we reach a statistical significance of 0.05 with this protocol, comparing MDMA plus the therapy with the therapy with placebo, then that's adequate for approval, although we need two of those. So what we found was, even though we had to decrease from 100 to 90 because of COVID, we still, FDA agreed that we could stop there. So it was a bit of a risk that our statistical significance might be less. But in fact, it basically took our breath away when we learned that the the p-value was 0.0001. That's to die for. You won't beat that again in your lifetime, I'm sure. I don't think so. <laughs> That'll be okay. If the second phase three comes at, at 0.05, that's all I care about. Yeah. Well, what's the status of the planning for that then? Well, the second phase three is now underway. I think about 30 people have been enrolled out of the 100 oh, now. Just thrilling. Just getting going. They haven't all been treated yet, but we're getting going. And then, we, of course, as you know, uh, we have trials coming up in England and Europe, phase two, and then phase three trials that are, are revving up now. And um, we're hoping that within about the next year, we can complete the second phase three trial and then apply for a new drug application for MDMA to have an indication, not for MDMA to have an indication, actually for MDMA assisted psychotherapy to have an indication for PTSD. And actually, Annie, you were saying, I think before that you've managed to to run a study as big as this in many centers around around the the world, you've actually had to train up a lot of new therapists and and they've proved to be effective as, well, that's probably not as effective as the Mitthoffers, but we didn't get to participate this time did you not <laughs> no so yeah that was uh, also across all of the sites every every team of therapists did as well and there was no difference from one site to the next so that was really good to know that our training had worked and yeah yeah that was 13 sites in three countries u.s canada and israel and yeah we our role in this study was to support and supervise the sites. We didn't get to treat anybody ourselves, so we can't take credit for the therapy in this one. Right, right. Take credit for the training, I would. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, there are other very big players in this field. I mean, people like Edna Feller have spent their life looking at ways of dealing with trauma and, and, and the process of sort of systematic extinction, desensitization, etc. How were they receiving this new data? Well, it's been an interesting progression. The more data we've published in reputable journals, including yours, uh, the more people have thought maybe we're not as crazy as they originally thought we were. So actually, we're now, um, one thing we're doing is we have a department now that I'm the medical reviewer for, for investigator-initiated trials. So other investigators now are, many of them are coming forward and wanting to do studies and use the MAPS MDMA. So actually, uh, one of those trials that's under development now involves Edna Foa and some people she's trained in Israel who want to experiment with MDMA with prolonged exposure therapy. So that's kind of where that stands. Barbara Rothbaum, who's also a very prominent prolonged exposure therapist and researcher at Emory, she's also probably before the Foa study maybe is going to be doing a similar thing with MDMA with prolonged exposure. And then, you know, we did a study with Candace Monson who developed cognitive behavioral conjoint therapy with couples. 
And we did a study with Candace and Ann Wagner from Toronto combining MDMA with cognitive behavioral conjoint therapy for couples. And that we had promising pilot data there. So I think it's it's been a real shift that people who are interested in other methods are now looking at how can we combine MDMA maybe with other approaches too. So, I mean, I'm asked all the time, how does it work? And in fact, I have just written a commentary on your study, which will be out by the, by the time people hear this podcast, because your study came out today and uh, mine they're still going to publish in the next couple of days. And the, the way I've tried to understand MDMA is a, in terms of its interaction with both the emotional, well, particularly in interaction with the emotional centers like the amygdala and the, and the ability for it to kind of restrain excessive amygdala activation so that people can can cope with the emotion and, and deal with it. Does that make sense to you or do you think I'm being too simplistic? I think that makes sense. You know, basically, David, you're in a much better position to explain how it works than we are because you're a neuroscientist. And we've mainly studied whether it works and whether it's safe. But of course, we're really interested in how it might be working. I think that's part of it. I also really like what you and Robin Carter Harris had written about the relaxed beliefs under psychedelics, that idea that by the changes in the networks, relationships, people have a possibility for a new perspective and a new experience. That seems, that makes a lot of sense based on what we're seeing, along with the idea that, you know, the mingle is turned down and you can process more effectively without being overwhelmed. I think that and a lot of other strands of research are very exciting. My take on it is, it's exciting how much we're learning and how much we have to learn. I am concerned about effort, you know, that we avoid falling into reductionist thinking because we are just struck again and again by how complex and deep and wide and rich these experiences can be and what people describe about these very complex processes that have many different elements. So I think as we learn these other aspects of why it may be working, I don't want to miss the chance to learn something even bigger or new about the nature of psychological healing and how the psychological part interacts with the biochemical part. And it's obviously all happening. And I just think it's much more complex than any one of these theories alone. Sure, you're right. I mean, I think that the challenge, of course, is it's easy to measure the amygdala, but it's quite hard to measure more complex constructs like making sense you know trying to make sense of why you were in the war in the first place and, and you know yeah. should you have signed up you know all those other factors you know which people reflect on when when they've been traumatized the sort of the self-blame etc so yeah but it's good i agree with you i think the explanations are going to be multiple and, and possibly different in each individual mm-hmm. yeah yes that too that true yeah just to make it complicated <laughs> Now, one of the great, uh, you know, there's a lovely video you show, I think one of the great messages we've got to get across, because still, when I talk to colleagues, I, I talk, even if I talk to psychiatrists who should know better, but certainly if I talk to other doctors and they say, oh, come on, you're just giving people a trip and they're having fun, you know, I mean, no wonder they feel better. And I always give them this wonderful quote from that uh, patient of yours. It's uh, when he comes out and he says, I can't believe why they call this ecstasy. <laughs> Right. Because <laughs> yes. it's not. It's just really challenging, difficult, and painful. And, and that's probably why it works, because people are actually going where they haven't been able to go before. 
Yeah. Yeah. Processing so trauma is challenging with or without MDMA. It just may be possible with MDMA where it hadn't been without it for some people. I want to talk to you about, about you two, really, because, I mean, obviously you're very effective. And I imagine you're effective because, you know, you, you both signed up to this and you both worked together as a, as a team. But I remember I've written several books on PTSD. And the first one, I, there, was, there was a Dutch uh, psychiatrist who used to specialize in treating people who treated PTSD or the first responders. And his view was that, you know, he, well, not view, it's a fact that he's actually, it's tough. I mean, I have to say of all the patients I've treated, the ones that have, I found most disturbing other PTSD patients, particularly the ones who've been tortured. And actually, to be honest, I kind of, you know, I find it quite difficult. I mean, how, how do you guys as a pair cope doing this all the time? You know, I, to say I enjoyed it would be kind of not a, be a ridiculous statement, but I, there is something about working with people in a deep state that I am just drawn to. I love the, the deep processing and we've worked with people just in our private practice that dissociate or have lots of trauma from childhood. And I really love to see the healing process happen and see them get better. I think you've answered what you've said, Annie, is that you do it right and they get better. And I was doing it not very well. Well, I wasn't getting better. (laughs) I can see, absolutely see the pleasure of getting it better because I never really saw that. Well, yeah, I mean, maybe that that's the case. But I mean, I've also seen people not get better and struggle for years and, and know that there could be other things that might help them. But, uh, but when, you know, this isn't for everyone, too. You know, MDMA therapy isn't for everyone. You know, we can't make everyone do it. But how about you, Michael? Yeah, I think that's part of it. The fact that when you see results, you know, you, the more we have the experience of people going through really challenging times, and then that pays off, which we saw with breathwork too. I mean, sometimes I saw that with other kinds of therapy. I was interested in kind of depth therapy, but it it was a lot slower and, and less frequent that people had these really profound changes in a relatively short period of time. So that helps. And then, you know, it helped. Sometimes it was very difficult emotionally, for us, you know, especially treating young, you know, young women about the age of our daughters. When we did the first study, our daughters were in their mid and late 20s, and um, we had some participants around their ages, and that, you know, we'd sometimes sob on the way home. Had the chance to process it together was very helpful. So we we needed our own ways of working with the effects of hearing all that stuff, for sure. Sure, self-care, yeah. No, it's vital. And I mean, obviously, you know, you're, you're the perfect pair because you, <laughs> you know, you can really do know what the other person's gone through, don't you? you you've been there with them. So what's the, what's the future? How do you, how are you hoping it's going to roll out, Michael? Well, I'm excited that as we get older, all these brilliant, <laughs> enthusiastic young people are coming along and taking it, taking the effort forward. So I'm really hoping that um, the second phase three trial can be finished within the next year or so and get good results. And then NBMA assisted therapy could be approved by FDA within a couple of years and maybe by EMA and and British authorities a year or so after that. So I think I'm hopeful that while it's important to recognize that this isn't like the perfect, the best thing since sliced bread that solves all the problems, 
for sure. I think it could be a very powerful tool and could have a good effect on psychiatry because I think a lot of psychiatrists are very frustrated with the limitations of the treatments we have. You know, we've had psychiatrists in our trainings watching the videos sometimes burst into tears and say, this is why I went into psychiatry to see this kind of change and I haven't been able to do it. Yeah. And did you think what we're seeing in the psychedelic field is we're seeing that the the sort of target indications are broadening. Um, Do you think we'll see that with with MDMA or do you think it really is just good for trauma? I think we're going to see it with MDMA. You know, we already have significant improvements in depression scores in our PTSD study, so that should be pursued. As you well know, there was a good British study of MDMA. (laughs) I wasn't wasn't trying to get this. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that's an important avenue. And um, there's an eating disorder study about to start. MAPS has sponsored pilot studies on um, MDMA-assisted therapy for anxiety in people with life-threatening illness, you know, similar to the psilocybin studies for that indication. We've done one, Charlie Grobe and Alicia Danforth did a a pilot study with uh, MDMA with social anxiety for people on the autism spectrum. We're getting IITs to study many other things, um, fibromyalgia, a a lot of other ideas are coming forward. Uh, So I think my guess is they're going to be there's going to be expanding research into a number of indications. And working with the couples, the relationship, I mean, that was just beautiful to see how that worked for the two two people together. Yeah, just remind the listeners, how because that's how it started, isn't it? It started with, yeah. with the Shulgins, and I've forgotten her name, but her encouraging therapist, Anne Shulgin. Tell us a little bit about that then, please. Oh, yeah. The, the couple study was just a beautiful beautiful study to do together with Candace and Anne. So they are, they are CBCT, Cognitive Behavioral Conjoint Therapists, and have a manual that Candace wrote. And we combined that with our MDMA manual. So all the, we had six couples, and one person in the couple had to have PTSD. The other person didn't. And they each got to take MDMA on two occasions. We started together. together, Yeah. And we started those sessions being two weeks apart. And then we went to three weeks apart for the, a little bit later and in the study, all of the cognitive behavioral conjoint therapy really was either a prep session or in the integration sessions. And then the MDMA sessions were pretty much just how we do it. And, you know, it was, it was so beautiful to see people talking about the traumatic events that they had never shared with their partner and how well they did together, listening and comforting each other. And it was really beautiful. And to see how the cognitive behavioral conjoint therapy worked as an integration tool, because they, they did all of the homework together and working on, you know, the, the thoughts and worksheets. Well, it'd be wonderful if we could roll MDMA out for couples problems as well, wouldn't it? It could save a lot of marriages, I suppose. Wow. That's not a diagnosis though, is it? That's the problem. I mean, The diagnosis system is a big problem, as right, you know. Right, right. And uh, along those lines of saving money, we're also working on getting a group therapy study going in Portland so that to see how, how we could change the ratio of therapists to 
participants and another way to make it more cost effective. So that's going to be pursued. For PTSD? For PTSD, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting, isn't it? That Because I was always very sceptical about the use of psilocybin, which is where I have more experience in, in trauma and anxiety disorders. But a lot of military people seem to be going to ayahuasca in groups, ayahuasca retreats. Yeah. And it may be that the group sessions are actually in some way better for people who've been traumatized in a group, like in a platoon or something. It may be. I, we're going to try to find that out, and especially if they if their trauma is similar enough. You know, you yes, absolutely. Group, like all war, all veterans with war trauma in one group. Yeah, I think it's very promising. I think that makes a lot of sense. Well, we're going to have to bring it to an end now. It's been fantastic talking to you. Oh, so good to spend the time with you too. Well, I really enjoyed it, David. Well, I want to thank you on behalf of the listeners, but I want to thank you on behalf of patients as well, because you, you're true pioneers, and it's been a pleasure seeing what you've done, having a chance to re- referee some of your papers, get them published in my journal, <laughs> and now the ultimate accolade to interview you together. So thank you both very uh, much indeed. Thank you. Thank you, David. So good to be with you. Well, that's the end of this episode of the Drug Science Podcast. Thank you for listening. But before you go... I would just like to share with you a question from our drug science community members. Recently, we recorded a very special podcast episode in which we invited all of our premium and philanthropic community members to ask me anything they like. Their questions were so good, I thought we should include one or two of them at the end of every podcast episode. So please enjoy this new segment of the show. Apologies for the audio quality as we recorded the session over Zoom. Hopefully they're vaguely relevant to what we've been discussing. And if you want to ask me anything, perhaps we could do an Ask David Anything Part 2. Enjoy. Yeah, hi, everyone. I'm actually a new member, so I'm very happy to be here. David, I actually just want to mention and express my gratitude for everything you do. And actually, one of the reasons why I've decided to study um, neuroscience is because of your research. So my question is about psychosis. Do you think psychedelics can be used to model and develop treatments for psychosis and schizophrenia? And are there any ongoing or planned projects that can provide us with a better understanding of neurological basis of the disorder? Thank you. So, I mean, of course, historically, one of the sort of four rationales for using, particularly LSD in the 50s, was to model psychosis. Uh, and also to give doctors, particularly psychiatrists, an insight into what it was like to have an altered state of consciousness that could potentially give them more empathy for their patients who were also, some of them would have been psychotic. And actually that's in some ways one of the problems with the early work with LSD because that was relatively convincing and, uh, and therefore people assumed that because you could model psychosis with LSD, then it was dangerous. They ignored the fact that almost always, you know, the experience is to do with the drug being in the brain rather than having any long-term consequences. But, there, you know, there were some examples of individuals whose psychosis was aggravated or precipitated by LSD. And those, some of them were, you know, musicians. And it's, it's been, you know, there's been this argument that it's dangerous because creative people can actually potentially become uncreative and, and damaged by it. But historically, if you look at the historical data back in the 1960s and 70s, I mean, there's thousands, 40,000 people were given, psychiatric patients were given LSD, very few had psychosis. But what we have done recently is we did two things. About 10 years ago, we did a survey of symptomatology 
under various drugs. So we looked at cannabis, the data on this data on THC. People have used THC, John Crystal's group in Yale, uh, to model psychosis. Similarly, that same group and others have used ketamine to model psychosis. We looked at some of our volunteers and other people's data on psilocybin. And psychedelics, although they don't perfectly model psychosis, they're somewhat better than both ketamine and THC. Uh, and they get the sort of about three quarters of the way to being schizophrenic or psychotogenic. And of course, they miss out, all of them really miss out on the fact that they don't cause auditory hallucinations. But because of that, uh, working, I was working with Professor Mittal, um, uh, Mittal at the in- Institute of Psychiatry. And a few years ago, we got a grant to essentially give normal, healthy people psilocybin and try out a new possible new treatment for psychosis. And this is a very interesting concept. This drug is called saracatinib, and it's actually developed as a treatment for prostate cancer. It works in a completely different way. As you probably know, most, well, all antipsychotics pretty much work to block the dopamine receptors. But this drug is a tyrosine kinase inhibitor, so it blocks a, a particular enzyme in the cell, which is why it was developed as anti-cancer treatment. And um, why, why was there any interest in it being something to do with psychosis? Because it got removed as a treatment because it, it had too many brain side effects. So it was getting in the brain. And the people, the company that had it was AstraZeneca. One or two of their scientists said, I wonder what it does in the brain. And they, quite interesting, isn't it? just off their own back, they did a study where they gave it to rats and then gave the rats LSD and discovered it blocked the effects of LSD in the rat. And then they actually approached us and they said, do you think it might block the effects of psilocybin or LSD in humans? And, and we showed it did. And we showed it did have a moderating effect. It didn't, it didn't eliminate them. But it did have a moderating effect. So, I mean, the drugs that eliminate them completely are 5-HC2 blockers that sit on the receptor and stop the psilocybin LSD getting to the receptor. But it attenuated some of the symptoms. And in fact, it was sufficiently strong that Mittal has gone on to, he's doing a study. He's actually using saracatinib as a, a, as a treatment for a sort of prodromal or early onset schizophrenia to see if it might work in this more mild case where you know, you don't want to give a dopamine blocker because you might sensitize the system. So, yes, so the answer is, is it's an interesting approach. We are using it. Results are tantalizing at present. And, of course, they could be used to try to study in humans all sorts of other treatments. So it would be a, it's much faster to do it in a volunteer with a psilocybin on board than it is to find people with untreated schizophrenia or psychosis. All right? And um, just to add... A little bit. So um, thank you so much. It is uh, very interesting. And I believe there was a study that revealed that buspirone prevented some psychotic effects on psilocybin. Does this sound promising and relevant to you if we talk about psychosis? But buspirone was developed, interestingly, as an antipsychotic. It just didn't work. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's conceivable. I mean, it's not, it has a very low affinity at the 2A receptor, but it does have a very high affinity at the 1A receptor. And it's Sorry, this is a very, maybe a bit too technical for those of you who aren't pharmacologists, but there are two main serotonin receptors in the brain. The 1A receptor, which turns off the brain, and the 2A receptor, which turns on the brain. But they're often sort of linked. So if you turn on the 1A receptor, it actually turns off the 2A receptor. So that will be my explanation as to why buspirone might have a, some moderating effect on, um, on it's a reciprocal interaction between these two receptor systems. 